Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Monday, November 13th, and we are privileged to have back on the channel John Miller of TD Cowan, who uh, focuses on, is based in Washington and focuses on uh, policy related work. We had you on, John, right after the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, and you were extremely um, received in um, giving us and our viewers a lot of great information about what that meant then. It's a little bit uh, over a year since that time. You've also keynoted uh, at Fast Markets uh, in each of the last two years, I think, uh, your uh, views uh, you know, widely followed and appreciate your insights. We just had an election um, in America uh, just last week. And, uh, you know, but one year from now is, is a big election. China has had this policy uh, made in China 2025. So we're pretty close to uh, 2025 and all the data points showing on the EV battery supply chain across the board, you know, BYD is selling great cars, CATL in batteries. And of course, you know, the midstream and, uh, you know, upstream, you know, supply of, of lithium in particular, but also nickel uh, has been, you know, they have great vision. But uh, in America, we have, uh, you know, uh, Trump MAGA, you know, so MAGA 2025 versus made in China 2025. There were there was a number of polls last week showing uh, in, in key swing states in America that Trump is winning, I think, in four out of the five of those, and that there's a real worry uh, about, you know, if Biden, if it's Biden, Trump, uh, Trump's going to win. Biden's insane electric vehicle mandate. You hear that? Everybody has to go buy an electric car, even though you can only drive for about 15 minutes. The happiest people in the world are the people who just got their electric vehicle charged. That lasts for 10 minutes. After that, they become somewhat schizophrenic because they're thinking about where the hell do I get it recharged? And Trump seems to be beating all of the other Republican, you know, primary, none of which are getting really, you know, any traction. Uh, I'm hopeful. I saw Joe Manchin uh, after Election Day decided he's not going to run for Senate again, but he put his arm around Mitt Romney. And maybe there's a, a dream ticket, you know, moderate uh, Democrat, Republican. Uh, he was talking about, you know, focusing on the budget, you know, going back to the I remember during the Obama years, there was this Erskine Bowles commission to get the budget, you know, there, but like a lot could happen. But right now there is a big fear, I think, in, I have a fear uh, in America and elsewhere. Uh, EVs are very political. You know, if you're a Republican, you're against them. If you're a Democrat, you're for them broadly in, in, in the tribal uh, nature of, of this. Uh, however, a lot of the battery factories and EV factories that have uh, been announced and are being built are in red states in, in America. Uh, I think we're going to entitle this, uh, you know, might Trump ice EVs. Uh, so let's start with that. Um, what do you see as that risk just politically, but also could you update us on where we are uh, maybe 14 or 15 months after the Inflation Reduction Act has passed? Yeah, absolutely, Howard. Um, great introduction. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you know the forum to to talk through these really important issues and unpack where we are, where we can go forward. So you know, a, a lot there. Um, great intro. We can we can tick through all those items. Some of which I certainly agree with. Some of which I think there's a lot more. Um, you know, we'll find out. I, I'm on the polls issue, right? Uh, you know, I'm absolutely supportive that the individuals conducting that poll had a, a strong methodology, reached out to the right people and are statistically sound. But is that actually arguing that, that Donald Trump would win in a head-to-head -head in November of 2024 in Michigan? I, I, I don't read it that way yet. So where are we now in, in November of 2023, right? More than a year out from the Inflation Reduction Act signage into law. And we're still waiting. We're waiting for a lot of key elements to come into place such that both individuals and corporates can really extract the value from that law. Um, so parts of the marketplace are increasingly frustrated about that timeline. Um, this, to be honest, is is standard government practice. Uh, Congress legislates. It passes really big pieces of legislation 
every eight years or so, aligns with a, generally an election cycle for a new president and a unified control of Congress. And then it takes a year, two years, in some cases a little bit longer for the different federal agencies to uh, write the guidance and the rule kit for corporates to engage with those credits. So within the EV space, it's really finalizing what needs to be done on the individual side. So I, as a consumer, if I go to a dealer or a, a direct to, to shop through Tesla model, there's a, a stacked $7,500 credit. The lingo there is the 30D individual clean vehicle credit. We know a lot about that credit, but it is there are still some pockets of uncertainty. Um, and an interesting point is on January 1, it'll become a point of sale style credit. So instead of having to wait until the end of the year when I, as an individual, file my tax, um, annual tax filing, I'll be able to get that credit upfront at the dealer. So that'll be helpful. That's definitely a catalyst that's positive side beginning in January for individuals purchasing cars. But for the manufacturers, there are lots of domestic content requirements in the critical minerals and then the battery and then the final assembly that there's a lot of uncertainty. And you alluded to a number of those issues. Most of, most of the challenge uh, in the near term is going to be on the battery manufacturing side because those rules are meant to kick in January 1 of 2024. The critical minerals a little further upstream, those really, really detailed rules aren't meant to kick in until 2025. So there is um, a little bit more time there, but if you're a major corporation and you have a global supply chain, even a year is not really obviously enough to, to change your supplier of cobalt. That's going to be a huge challenge. So we're just waiting and that's uh, becoming more and more of a challenge. Why, why are we waiting at this point? Um, a lot of it is just politics, right? All the stakeholders have come forward to speak with the administration, to Treasury, to John Podesta, who's leading this effort for, for President Biden, and they've outlined what their ask is. And in politics, the, the hardest decision is a decision when there's winners and losers. So these are all key stakeholders for Dems. They don't want to anger the environmental left. They don't want to anger the union. They don't want to anger the auto OEM. So they're waiting for the best time to, to drop an announcement, which there will be winners and losers, and, and try and just get the most leverage out of that. So unfortunately, we're in a waiting cycle. Uh, we expect by the end of the year to have a lot more um, first round guidance on 45X, which is the advanced manufacturing side, where you get paid a credit to produce uh, a battery, battery cell or a module, and on that, that 30D on the individual side. So more will come, um, but as you noted, a lot's been changing, right? We've had a, an off cycle election, uh, not a lot of real change there, right? The, the states that we were watching, Virginia and New Jersey, Republicans had had really aggressively um, spent money and, and turned up the language around climate change. In New Jersey, it was more offshore wind, but in Virginia, it was a little more macro. And we just didn't see that really connect with voters. Um, in both states, there will be a Democratic majority in the state legislature. So that's a, a challenge for the Republican governor in Virginia. And in, in New Jersey, we expect them to actually do more legislation on climate. So it's unclear if these are issues that motivate um, and, and really will turn out the base and will matter in election. You mentioned Manchin. Yeah, that's a that's a huge loss for Democrats, right? He is a senior senator from West Virginia. He's very senior on a really important committee in the Senate. So him stepping down has has certainly implications. And the question is, wh where does he go next? He was pretty coy with the the the, the announcement that I'm not running again, but I'm not leaving. I'm going to explore the middle. That's a really hard challenge, right? Uh, the no labels concept is is it sounds enticing and it, it would certainly draw from a democratic caucus, but from, from an operational and money and logistics, it's a real challenge to run that style election. But if you're Biden, you have to pay attention to it, right? He's not going to necessarily pull votes from Trump. He's just gonna be pulling votes from Biden. So they, they need to find a way to, to square that. Um, but let's, yeah, let's dig in wherever it makes the most sense and, and go where you want. Do you think Manchin will, uh, if he does go, would go the no labels route, which would be an independent route, or could he uh, uh, challenge Biden? Or what do you, how do you, would you handicap the probability that uh, you know Jill Biden, his wife, you know, has a heart to heart uh, with Joe and says, "Dude, you know, for the good of the country, um, second terms are disastrous, typically, um, and you know." you know, just step aside and you have, you've enacted great legislation. You know, so how would you handicap yeah. that likelihood? Yeah, no, it, I, so this is one of the real challenges of the, the infrastructure that's been built in the U.S. around a two-party system. It's very, one, it's very, very difficult on the outside to challenge that structure. And then once you're on the inside, it's very, very difficult to step away. Uh, if you just look at Congress, you're seeing 
clear demographic shifts up the ladder in Congress because of that issue about raising money, about being on a ticket. And the longer you're in Congress, the more senior you are and the more important responsibilities you're given. So you're almost incentivized to stay until you're 100, right? Because you're at that point chair of an important committee and you can allocate out dollars. On the, in the, the executive side, on the presidential side, like uh, Biden's always wanted to rerun, right? This time last year, he was floating around that kind of narrative garbage that he was going to take Thanksgiving with his family and talk to them. And, you know, they were going to be the ones that finally decide. That's that's ridiculous, right? He is the brand, right? He is the family. No one's telling him not to run within that circle. And so he wants to run and he will run. And our view is he will be the presidential nominee from the Democratic Party, X, some form of very, very not hideable right health issue and that's not just the regular incoherence that that can that can come from him and i'll note that that's not necessarily new right it's it looks worse because he's older but he's you know he's always struggled with um public speaking and delivering messages so some of that is is unfair and that's just who he is but again x some sort of really objective non-debatable health issue, he, he'll be the Democratic presidential nominee. Where does Manchin slot into that? It, uh, you know, he, it's, he could, you know, run on the Democratic ticket, but at this point, it'd be really hard to even get on some of the early state ballots. You know, he has really very little money to do that. He's much more effective as a, a third party who can, you know, raise a lot of red flags about risk and maybe push the Democratic Party's policy plank into this election more back towards the center. Um, and, I, and, you know, there's also the possibility that, you know, as we get into the summer of 2024, we see him show up at the Democratic uh, nominee convention and, you know, note that Trump is an existential risk and, you know, he thinks he shifted the party a little bit towards the middle and he comes back to the Democratic. We, we really don't know, but I don't see a valid third party run, right? You're seeing Jill Stein from the Green Party. It's a huge risk for Democrats, even if she takes 20 or 30,000 votes in places like Wisconsin or Minnesota, that might be enough to swing that state to, to Trump. That's more of a risk than Joe Manchin right now. Before we start today's video, we'd like to thank Lithium Royalty Corp, listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. We'll share more later in the video. Okay, a lot of noise between now and November of next year, and uh, but I watched a number of the Republican debates and all of the Republican uh, you know, hopefuls seem to be one-upping themselves, or maybe I'm quoting you and uh, some of your research that they were like one-upping themselves of who could be more anti-EV. Uh, so how, you know, there's a national security issue here, you know, and then there's a consumer driven, you know, mm -hmm. issue here. And clearly, like, China is going all EV, right? And the rest of the world is going all EV. So, uh, you know, what he may say, what Trump may say, and what in actuality, you know, I don't know what, what he thinks about Elon Musk, but Elon Musk's politics have become a kind of more, you know, center-right. So the latest research from Bloomberg showed the Model 3 and the Model Y, the price relative to the average car price in the U.S., and the Model 3 is now cheaper, and the Model Y is marginally expensive. But if you take the $7,500 credit and you add Illinois, I think, has got $4,000, so you take another $11,500 off, and a Model 3 is $16,000 cheaper than the average new car in America. So from an economics perspective, on a sticker price and on a life of, of, of usage basis, it's going to be very hard to, to, not, to not be economically compelling. Okay, so then yeah. it's consumer-driven no, if uh, yeah. these are better, yeah. faster cars. Um, <laughs> and the consumers want them, then it's just as, as many as like Tesla could produce. But Tesla's not the only one, right? You know, if Tesla all of a sudden gains huge market share, there's politics of, you know, what happens, you know, to GM and Ford and all those other other jobs. So I, I guess the, the, the there's a lot of noise out there right now. EV demand is slowing and GM and Ford are mm -hmm. slowing. So I'm just like the politics of this is just <laughs> what I'm trying to. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm going to get an answer and we're just going to it's just going to be noise for the next you know, 12, 14 months. But what's I, your well, view? Yeah. So there's certainly a, a cottage industry of uh, commentators, uh, both inside politics and on the market side that are always doom and gloom for the EV space. Right back in 2022, it was 
look how look how expensive they got and the inflation in this value chain. There's no one's ever going to be to afford them. Now in 2023, the the growth rate has slowed, and so it's you know indicative of kind of the end of the world again. So you're tabling that all. Republicans have have showed what they want to do, right? So if there is a Republican sweep, to use that word in 2024, Republicans have control of Congress and the president the executive office, they would make changes to that $7,500 individual credit, right? They're not proposing to eliminate it. They're proposing to to make the, the restrictions for access harder, right? Mainly on the domestic content side. You know, that would be a definitely a, a, a tailwind um, for for domestic mining, domestic mineral upgrading production, and domestic manufacturing. It would make it harder for the individual consumer to walk into a dealer in the near term and find an eligible vehicle, but they're not talking about totally eliminating this credit. That's not something that's really in the marketplace. You're hearing that in a debate, right? Because a debate's not really the format to have a nuanced conversation about anything, right? It's about <laughs> deliver. Yeah, it's about, it's about clips, and, and you're competing with five or six other individuals, you might get to speak two or three times. So it's not really helpful. Then the same thing from Trump. Like I don't believe that he actually, you know, his mind thinks that you know you can drive an EV for ten minutes and you have to charge it again. The the the, the right the, the data is we're we're seeing markets right where drive patterns that make sense for the initial waves of vehicle electrification there's higher penetration rates, right? So Republican states, you can think Florida, you can think Texas are good markets for EVs. Um, there are other Republican states in the upper Midwest, right, where there's more of a commercial vehicle, there's longer drives, there's more you know, farm style vehicles. Yeah, that penetration rate is gonna be lower for some time. So I, I don't, I don't really read too much in that other than the, you know, the models are coming, they're changing, they're evolving and demand will change. Um, that's an important factor too here as well as states have their own credit structure. No matter what happens in the federal election in 2024, New York is going to pursue its you know low carbon fuel standards style structure to decarbonize the transportation space. Illinois is going to continue with its aggressive rollout and point of sale and on charging. And there's always California too as well, right? And those are huge markets in the US that are driving that. The Chinese OEMs, right, are going to struggle, in, at least in my mind, in the near term because of tariffs. If you're importing anything directly from China at this point, it has a Section 301 tariff that starts at at least 20%. <laughs> and then all those vehicles are likely going to be ineligible for either the manufacturing credit or the individual point of sale credit. So they'll be structurally disadvantaged. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that South Korean or Japanese or European OEMs will be similarly disadvantaged. They'll, they'll be able to compete at a better footing. And that's the real stress for sort of the legacy U.S. OEMs. You suggested if a Republican kind of swept everything, the, the recent elections have not shown that the Republicans are doing well, including the most recent one. So it's very possible Trump could win. The Congress would still be in Democratic hands. And, uh, you know, of all the issues out there, on, again, on the national security side, on the permitting side, you know, Trump was very good on the permitting side. You know, Lithium America's Thacker Pass um, got approved within 360 days just before Biden got elected, right? That was a policy, you know, that was then undone, you know, on, on the permitting side, I think, by, um, uh, you know, by Biden. So I, I, I do see... Um, from a permitting perspective, if, if we have U.S. projects and then, you know, in terms of mineral, mineral security partnerships, uh, I think uh, Trump, you know, with Canada and Australia, I think that would be fine. I guess the question is just as how much does he like promote coal? You know, Trump digs coal. You know, how much does he promote, you know, drill, baby, drill oil? Um you know, for fossil fuel cars, um, have we just reached a tipping point? Are we at a point of no return where, you know, it would be impossible to, you know, if the auto industry are like super tankers, you know, just turn it around? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, again, this kind of gets into more of the, the economics and the macro, so that's outside of the DC, but the, the, the policy direction here is, is pretty clear, driven by states and what the manufacturers want to do. And now with the federal tax credits, it, you know, eliminating this marketplace in the U.S. doesn't seem to be a rational place to start, right? In permitting reform is is a great place, right? The Republicans who, you know, would have the objective of of probably you know increasing fossil pipelines, refining assets, they would need to reform the structure, and in reforming the structure would would create breaks for 
critical mineral processing, you know, everything north of that mine mouth. So that would certainly be a benefit. Uh, the, the Trump administration did move a number of permitting processes forward quickly. Unfortunately, as part of that, you know, arguably they didn't do a very good thorough job and that exposed them to back end litigation risks, which is one of the real challenges with the, you know, the first Trump administration, right? A lot of his ideas and then he never really surrounded himself with the competent staff to do it in a way that was legally robust. And the Biden administration was able to easily, you know, repeal it effectively on day one and interjected a lot of uncertainty. You know, one thing that you'd expect from a Republican administration is, is more work on the permitting side. That would be super helpful. Look, yeah, they try and get Interior to do more onshore oil and gas leasing on federal land. But right now, 13 million barrels per day, right? A lot more being exported. So it, some of this is an economic argument, but how low can you really squeeze the, the dollar per gallon on an ICE vehicle? Um, you can see a, a Republican administration also pulling back some of the tailpipe emission standards from the EPA. So that would slow down um, some of the more U.S. focused manufacturers a bit, you know, likely. But they're selling to a global market. So I, I think it's pretty hard to unwind that. Uh, I think you mentioned at some point that, you know, the vehicles are now much more cost effective at point of sale. There are many ways superior vehicles to drive. Those are the things that are going to be, be motivating, along with a you know, continued investment in a charging infrastructure that reduces this sort of inherent American boundary about range anxiety. Um, so that that's something to look at too as well. The, the two or three key things that we see for, as demand drivers is the $7,500 point of sale credit, which you mentioned. So if it's a $50,000 car, and that becomes a $42,500 car right up front, you're mm -hmm. then taking a loan or a lease based on that $42,500 instead of the $50,000, as opposed to the way it currently is. Um, and then, yeah, all the uh, non-Tesla autos that could use Tesla superchargers now goes a long way to solving the range anxiety issue. And then I saw another group, I think it was Shell, and then there was now another one, I think, in Europe who are going to be buying Tesla superchargers. So those things are being addressed. Um, and uh, John, just a quick question. And again, all if these jobs. Illinois, in... If Illinois gives a $4,000 credit, do you get that at point of sale or is that you have to wait for your tax return? Yeah, each state runs it slightly differently, um, depending how they want to structure this credit. There's there's a clear understanding that point of sale is a much more effective tax credit, um, right. not even like considering things like, you know, cost of money and time of capital and things of that nature. It's just more effective at that point. California also runs, you know, very aggressive um, point of sale stimulus in New York too as well have, have programs. But the, the 7,500, you said though, the, the, a lot of the rules, which, which cars apply, uh, you know, will comply mm -hmm. with that. So there's one thing like on an income level, right? Mm -hmm. Mansion made sure that it wasn't for super expensive vehicles and, and mm -hmm. there are certain income caps, but for, uh, you know, Tesla, who's producing out of Fremont, uh, you know, a model, I don't know, are they making the Model 3 out of there? I don't, I don't know. Um, In California? Yeah, the the X, the 3, I think the, most of the Ys are coming from Texas so now. So anything that's manufactured in America, that would fully comply. But something from, um, something from Germany, I guess, is a free trade country, but, uh, you know, so an export from China that's using a CATL battery would not qualify for a full $7,500 credit. Right, the, the $7,500 is broken down right into 3750 mm -hmm. for yep. the battery there's, and 3750 for the that's right for the minerals that's right there's a critical mineral component and then there's a battery manufacturing and final assembly component final assembly is basically United States but also Canada and Mexico in your example of you know a vehicle that's assembled in the United States or Canada using a CATL manufactured battery in China wouldn't be eligible necessarily for that that battery component, but could be for the critical minerals, depending on where China is sourcing that. There's other concerns here, right, with this this much more broader sweep of language called a foreign entity of concern. It was another ad, um, you know, a, a key component of what Senator Manchin wanted to do to, to really hold the industry to what it's been saying, saying that, hey, we can do this in the U.S. and North America and in free trade countries and, and get China out of the value chain. So it's it's likely that that's defined in a fairly strident way that you know CATL will struggle with that right so you're seeing um, restructurings of this value chain to be eligible for that credit and so you can go to Treasury and and, and DOE run run a website where you can see what vehicles are eligible um, for what pay rates um, depending on your income level and and the price of the vehicle 
And Tesla has been very aggressive running a banner on its, its website saying, hey, you know, if you're interested in purchasing a car and want to be eligible for this max $7,500 credit, you should really do it before January 1 of next year when the rules change. And there may be some more uncertainty about what those vehicles are that qualify. So they've been out, out front in that. Some of it, of course, is just pulling forward demand in a commercial sense. But there is also you know, legitimate risk in, in how that's going to be defined, even for you know, what's, what's generally flagged as a leader in U.S. manufactured vehicle from the IP to the equipment to the final assessment. But Korean batteries and Japanese batteries, they're free trade agreement countries and uh, anything from those countries inside or outside of America, and a lot of them are building inside America, would comply. If the critical mineral and the minerals are processed in a free trade agreement country, then yes. And so you saw an agreement earlier this year between the U.S. and Japan uh, extending a free trade agreement for the critical mineral side. The battery manufacturing is is at a different level, and that would need to be done in the U.S. Um, This week, uh, the leadership from Indonesia is here. Indonesia has been a flashpoint in this global versus domestic marketplace where you know a larger produce a largest one of the largest producers of, of of cobalt right with lots of direct chinese fdi in that marketplace some significant questions about you know labor and environmental practices but there's a big push from indonesia to be qualified as a, as a fta for critical minerals right and, and a lot of the large oems want that too as well as uh, so it would enable them to, to have a easier access to to more quantity in the near term and you can imagine on the other side of that there are are many uh, developers in Canada and the U.S. who are looking to to hold that down. So the meeting's meant to happen today ahead of a big um, you know Pacific Rim conference in California on Wednesday. We'll we'll see. Right, an announcement of you know, the pathway to a, a free trade agreement would be a big deal from Indonesia. It'd be negative for a lot of domestic-based miners. Um, anything short of that, kind of the inverse of that situation. I think you were talking nickel. You mentioned cobalt, but I think oh, it, it, yeah. it, it, it's principally nickel. And uh, yeah. everything that I've read so far on that was like they're going to have a big meeting, but it's going to be <clears throat> quite far in the future before they give free trade agreement. You know, they need to investigate. There are tons of Chinese fingerprints all over uh, Indonesian nickel processing, and there are very real environmental kind of considerations. So you're basically saying, because um, we, we care from a talent metals perspective, mm-hmm. the only uh, developer of a you know high grade you know sulfide nickel mine, um, you're saying anything short of them getting a free trade agreement agreed today should be you know which they're not going to get you know yeah i think that'd be beneficial for the domestic names yeah for sure for sure i i think that the the domestic miners and and prospectors have done a good job of framing this argument right but to be honest there's 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 the other side of that too as well there's the large oems who need access to this material and they're applying pressure as well um, there, there are multiple stakeholders in front of the administration making this argument. Um, an interesting approach to this would be, yes, maybe even in, in the case where um, Indonesia does get that FTA, the material may still be de- deemed ineligible because of the foreign entity of concern, right? So it could be mined in Indonesia, but because the operator has a 25% passive Chinese investment, that's a foreign entity of concern. And so it really doesn't even matter. That would still be excluded anywhere it shows up in the vehicle. So mm-hmm. there's a couple of different layers in play. And and so for the 3750, that's mineral-based, and there's lots of different minerals in the battery. So uh, does it uh, all of the components have to be ex-China? Or if you said, okay, there's a bit of nickel that has some China on it, but they get all the lithium and that's uh, in free trade agreement countries and the, mm-hmm. or they, that's the guidance we're waiting to hear. Yeah, no, the, the Treasury's proposed basically a value-added pathway where you look at the different stages, what's being done and where, and you add that up and you try and achieve a hurdle ratio for the various different year. And if you're above the hurdle ratio, it qualifies. And if you're below, you, you would not qualify. Over time, that hurdle becomes harder to achieve. It, it moves higher. And then on top of that, there is the foreign entity of concern sanction, which is just binary. So even if you achieve the hurdle rate for FTA and U.S. minerals, the list is, is fairly extensive of what qualifies. Even if one of those has exposure to a Chinese foreign entity of concern, the entire element then disqualifies. So that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deep value chain auditing process that these companies are doing now to try and understand that. That's why they need that definition as soon as possible. 
Okay, that's interesting. So if it touches China, it's off limits completely because if they're labeled a foreign entity of concern. But if it's not China, but it's not a free trade agreement country, then it's on a value added basis because yep. um, I remember Liven's Paul Graves said their Argentine brine, you know, that is processed in North Carolina would get 100% uh free trade you know access even though argentina wasn't free trade agreement country um what you're saying is that that might not be the case because the value add of the the carbonate that comes from argentina would be valued versus the you know the hydroxide conversion in in north carolina or we still don't know this it's still to be determined so we, what we have, we have, we have staff guidance from staff, which right aren't the political appointees. It's not a proposed or final rule at, the, at this point in most instances. And what they've said in that example is, say the the mining operation in Argentina costs X, and the upgrading in North Carolina costs two X, right? So your total value is is three X, um, and they're saying that in the first year you need to pass a hurdle of forty percent. Because 2x of that value was done in North Carolina, even though, you know, a final third was done in a non-free trade agreement country, that processed mineral is eligible for the 3750 credit. So that's what you're hearing from various different miners and OEMs to try and optimize a value chain such that the really value added behaviors are done in areas that qualify and they can mitigate in non-free trade agreement companies operations. On top of that, they're also screening for all their partners in that value chain that may have a, a, a 20 to 25% Chinese ownership percentage. We don't really know what that percentage is going to be yet. We've seen Treasury discuss this in other matters related to semiconductors, but they haven't defined the, the de minimis level yet for, for minerals and mining, probably in the 25 and lower percentile, percentile frame. So that's how that structure works. And then you can add that to the other 3750 credit if you know, the battery manufacturing and assembly is done in North America. Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about Lithium Royalty Corp. Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, lower-cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. Okay. Right now, uh, China controls so much of graphite processing, lithium processing. So all of the Australian spodumene that goes to China will not qualify, right? So there's a lot of batteries that contain Mm -hmm. lithium. Um, you know, from that route that won't, you'll only get the 3750 credit, not the 7500 credit. Um, and you know, that could have some impact, but okay. Yeah, and, and maybe just the last layer, and I don't, I don't want to just, just drive this into the ground. Is we, the the foreign entity concern names um, several uh, covered countries, but it's not all of China, right? It's going to be much more refined than that. So there will be possible ways where Chinese entities can. Um, form their letters of association outside of China, do not have business inside of China, and potentially be able to avoid that foreign entity of concern screening. It will be hard, but you will see attempts to do that. So it is not entirely a binary screen where anything who has any exposure or investment from China is totally out, but it becomes much more challenging. And you could see a Republican president in 2025 become even more strident about that language. So one of the interesting things is this is the Biden administration's attempt to define this screen. A Trump administration or a DeSantis or a Haley administration could take, a again, a much more um, strident approach to it, making it more challenging. Is there any way just to, to, to flip this around? So she and Biden are going to meet this week uh, on the outskirts of the APEC summit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, the last time they were supposed to meet, uh, they didn't, I think, in February because of that uh, balloon issue. Um, 
forgot about or you know it was an issue for but catl and ford or ford had a mm -hmm. partnership you know where it, mm -hmm. they were just gonna be licensing ip mm -hmm. there's an argument here like a company like ganfeng in lithium right it it, it it it's hard to convert make lithium hydroxide right in australia even though they're trying to copy paste what they're doing in china if you had uh you know ganfeng or other chinese company expertise ip you know the plant's going to be here in America. Is there any like rapprochement or, or like any like, kind of recognition that we're not like holy adversaries on everything? Yes, sensitive semiconductors and other things, but we're, we're so interdependent with China. You know, can, I think RFK Jr. was talking about this in his, you know, articulation of, um, you know, how he would interact with China, just like focus on the positive. Everything's just been like negative, mm -hmm. you know, China versus the US. Is there any scope? for uh, yeah, warmth I, I, here where, 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 you know, it's not made in China, but it, we could access Chinese technology and can copy Chinese technology, you know, here in America. Yeah, I, I think there is, right? I think that it's a challenge with the calendar, right? We're heading into a federal election in November of next year, and Republicans are doing everything they possibly can to find weakness in this administration vis-a-vis -vis China, right, and call it out. So that creates this constraint where the Biden administration then feels like they need to be more and more tough on these issues. The argument you just made is the argument that uh, Governor Whitmer from Michigan is making, right, to the administration, to Treasury, that, hey, you know, there's a reason we're, we're, we're doing, we're supportive of the Ford uh, IP licensing joint venture. It's moving beyond lithium ion. It's a new technology. We don't have access to it in the near term. We don't have this IP in the near term. Why wouldn't we use this in a structure where there's union jobs, U.S. manufacturing, economic activity? Why wouldn't we do this? Um, so she's aggressively making that argument. And that's one of the reasons that it's taken so long to define foreign entity of concern. Because on one side, the administration is being pressured by um, Republican opponents, right, who are, who are trying to make everything a China issue. And then they have key constituents, including Governor Whitmer, saying, hey, you need to find a way to define foreign entity concern that these IP style agreements can work. Um, it's it's down at the grassroots level, right? You're seeing local siting board and commissioners who approve projects with Goshen getting, you know, attempts to repeal them from their seats and, and like very explicit hate mail. Um, it's, it's you're seeing it in Congress where the Republicans are introducing bill after bill to prohibit China's entities from purchasing farmland with the view that they're strategically purchasing farmland near military institutions. So that that level of rhetoric is, is very, very high. But there are, there are pockets of engagement. You know, again, um, this administration has allowed John Kerry to maintain his climate relationship with China. You can chuckle at that for, for what it is, but through the, the sort of full troughs of, the, of, of this administration's relationship with China, that has been an open door conversation. Um, Kerry and his counterpart had four days of conversations in California last week before COP28. So those are pockets where, you know, you can walk down some of this escalation. I don't have very um, major expectations for what we'll see out of APEC this week. This is you know, the first sit down since that balloon incident. There are so many other entities and things going on, but this is it's a positive just to have any conversation. Reading more than that is probably not the right thing to do, but it's still better than nothing. Okay. And what about uh, um, the loan programs office? Uh, Jigger Shah has cut a very uh, significant figure here um, with a bazooka of uh, you know, four <laughs> or five hundred billion dollars. Um, we're anxiously yep. awaiting to see if uh, you yep. know Thacker Pass will get it. Uh, Piedmont mm -hmm. has uh, applied for it. Um, mm -hmm. I think Ioneer has got a conditional credit, but you know, not yet been no disbursements yet. But it is that was. Loan Programs Office has been around for a long time. Um, Tesla originally got a loan from mm -hmm. that back in the day, but under Trump, it was dormant. And, mm -hmm. you know, is it possible under a Trump or any Republican administration, is Jigger Shah out of a job? And is this whole you know, process shut down? Or, and, and might we see a ton of loans like between now and next year because there might be um, a curtailment? 
Yeah. I think we have a, a good good likelihood of seeing all of those things, right? So probably the easiest to answer is that as Mr. Shah would be removed right under a Trump administration or any other Republican administration. Um, he has, I think, rightly so positioned himself in, in a really unique um, role in financing the clean energy transition. And just because of that language and that positioning, uh, Republicans are opposed to, to his seat. Uh, we've, we've actually seen you know, Senate Republicans try and shift their narrative away from um, subpoenaing LPO over over China exposure to uh, subpoenaing directly uh, Jigger Shah and, and his engagement and how loans are authorized to whom they're authorized. This is the same playbook we saw under the Obama administration where Republicans framed Solyndra and a relatively small engagement with Solyndra, a company that went bankrupt, as that this is this entire program is a, is a boondoggle and it's it's not careful and respectful of, of public money. And so once you've changed the public perception of this program, it became impossible to operate. It was dormant under the Trump administration. Surprised by that. I think if he had a member of his transition team or energy policy team that let him know that he basically had his own personal bank that can write billions of dollars of concessional loans, he would have been more aggressive to use that in spaces he thinks are interesting. So it's not a guarantee that under a Republican administration, the LPO goes away. I think you just see a lot more hydrogen loans, a lot more synthetic fuels, biofuels, things of that nature, a lot more leaning into new nuclear, uh, maybe as opposed to vehicle electrification. But the, the last point you made is, will we see a flurry of activity in the next year? Absolutely, right, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, Jager Shana's team had to start a bank from scratch in, back in, in, in the end of 2021, 2022. That's hard to do, spinning up that organization from scratch. They're finally doing that. They have a deep pipeline. A lot of the additional loan um, capabilities they were given under the Inflation Reduction Act, they have to get out the door really before next November. Otherwise, those dollars go away. They went to Congress and said, we need this money. There's demand for it now. You know, Give us a, a timeline. We'll get it done. And so they have to get those dollars out. So I think that that acceleration comes regardless of all the other things in the place. Uh, clean, clean energy, obviously, writ large. Uh, critical materials and nuclear are things they want to do in a big way in this year. Yeah. And it's also more attractive than, than some of the, the BIL programs, too. I'm not sure if, if we hit on this before in, in other conversations, but you know, there's a view that a government grant is you just get a billion-dollar check and you don't have to have any check-ins, right? There are a lot of covenants, requirements, check-ins, distribution hurdles, partnership requirements, environmental justice requirements, DEI. It, it can make grants very, very challenging. In some ways, LPO, because it can really structure the financing differently for each project, each consumer, uh, you you can you can get a product that's maybe more more right for wherever you are in your story through you know uh, public finance. Yeah, Piedmont walked away from their grant um, because it was, although sizable, um, given the project size of Tennessee and Carolina, I think they're applying for both. Uh, the amount of capital they can get through the loan is is much higher. Okay, um, and. Ojigo has until January 2025, right? The election is November, but he'll still be in his seat, we hope, until January, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, you see the resignations begin, even if, if Biden would be reelected. I'm not quite sure what he want to do. Um, so his seat is, is much more flexible. Uh, uh, most his, of his, his office, I just remember like Thacker Pass got approved like hmm. six days before <laughs> Biden came into office. So that was like... Whoever was administering that at the BLM, they were conscious mm -hmm. that oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. a change of administration might have a different outcome. So I'm just thinking alone in that eventuality. Uh, okay. Uh, what about the uh, UAW um, mm -hmm. and all of the strikes? And is it, you know, we all think about it like uh, all the Tesla fans, Tesla's market share is huge in electric vehicles. And if we go all electric, there's going to be losers here, right? It is conceivable that a Ford or a GM could go bankrupt. Do you think that could happen politically? Like they would be bailed out? Yeah, well, they've already been bailed out. So we've already seen that, right? Um, 2008, 2009. So it's certainly a, a possibility in this space. Um, I think that like this, this administration, the Biden administration is probably the last old school pro-union style Democrat we'll see. There are 
other pockets of that um, throughout the Democratic caucus, but would another lean in the way this administration did, going to, you know, a strike line and, and the conversations and the narratives that they've had? Um, I, I don't know. And it's it's a, it's an interesting question for sure. The impact of it, yeah, it raises the structural fixed costs, right, for the legacy OEMs as they're going through a major transition. You know, they've tried to point that out several times. Um, Ford has options, right? It can do the the cattle IP JV in Michigan with union labor, or it can do its 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 SK, you know, JV in 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 as a Tennessee or Kentucky, right, with with non-union labor and with government dollars supporting that operation. So we'll we'll see how that plays out. UAW's been very adamant that Tesla is a target for them, um, not only in the U.S. but globally. So we'll see, right? That seems like that's going to be a huge challenge for them. But Tesla is, is deploying capital in Nevada, right? And that seems to be where they're they're targeting they're targeting their potential uh, labor unionization aggressive efforts. And we'll see. Okay. John, anything that we should have asked you that we haven't? There is there's the, the sort of odd leasing loophole right now, the way this administration is, is interpreting a commercial vehicle credit where individuals can go lease a vehicle and, and capture up to $7,500 in, in a leasing credit. That's something that, you know, Republican president probably wouldn't maintain, but it's been good for yeah, specifically the South Korean uh, EV manufacturers, right? You can go and lease a Hyundai and get that $7,500 credit. Um, so that that's maybe a nuance, but yeah, it's been good. What about a Tesla? So can, can I lease a Tesla? Because I don't think I could qualify on the income level. But yeah. If I lease it, like through my RK Equity LLC, like how do people get around that loophole? So what, what Treasury has said is that the commercial sale takes place when the OEM sells the vehicle to the lease financing company, which is generally structured as an independent corporate from the OEM. And therefore, mm-hmm. your lease is with the lease financing company. So Tesla, you know, because of their model, I'm not entirely sure how they run financing, but mm-hmm. likely, right? And so it doesn't have the the MSRP caps. It doesn't have the earned income caps, and it doesn't have any of the domestic content requirements. And so mm-hmm. you're seeing a lot of leasing activity for South Korean and, and, and German EVs. But now, if, that, if, if Republicans were to come in, would that be retrospective or how would they cancel it? Yeah, they would they would post that um, first in staff guidance and a proposed rule and a final rule effective on X date that that would no longer be the way that that credit is interpreted and deployed in the market. So if you have a lease agreement, you're good, but okay. they would close that loophole. The only reason that exists the way it does is, is when the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, the text actually came out. Basically, the, the German OEMs and our trading partners in South Korea are like, this is incredibly protectionist and you've just cut out our entire EV manufacturing market. How could you possibly do that? And the administration didn't have a lot of tools, right? They couldn't rewrite the law. They couldn't ask Congress to consider this again. This was their avenue to provide a fig leaf. Okay. I thought of another question. Just yeah. um, So having known you for a while, uh, Cowan got bought by TD. Um, we came to know you uh, during the pandemic around mm-hmm. 2020. Uh, there was all the hype leading up to battery day. You had you know massive monetary and fiscal stimulus for a long period of time. You had a whole bunch of SPACs that came about because of that free money uh, that went to companies that Cowan covers, like uh, EVgo and Charging or ChargePoint and Frere and, and other companies, Lifecycle. And the air is out of that bubble, you know, very significantly as it or plug power as another one. Um, and as it is, you know, like in the lithium space and also from an ESG, everybody was sustainability ESG and you were very, you had sustainability conferences mm-hmm. and rankings and all this other stuff. And there's been some pushback, you know, on, on that as well. Just the overarching kind of thematic of sustainable investing and EVs within that sustainable investing. And um, China's leading this again, going back to the beginning, like made in China 2025, they had a policy, you know, eight or nine years ago and have been executing very strongly on that. Europe uh, has, you know, EV penetration very high. America has been a laggard. Some people that we're speaking to are trying to ascertain, uh, you know, the demand side, you know, is EV Mm -hmm. adoption slowing, et cetera. They're thinking that 
you know, the U.S. actually could surprise on the upside in terms of demand because, you know, cost of batteries, cost of cost competitiveness of Tesla and others um, is very, very strong, you know, despite all of the anti, you know, EV, you know, all the gloom and doom that we're hearing. So just like fundamentally, you digest all this research within Cowan, like what, what's your sense? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, you know, that we're going to see a great adoption acceleration or are these fears, you know, fundamentally real and we should ratchet down our expectations. Yeah. So there, there, there was, there was a lot there that I think I want to hit on many of those different parts, right? We're still you know, of the belief that ESG is an investment framework, right? To identify risk or capture opportunities is a strong thematic that's, that's not going away, right? It, it's shifting for sure how it's being deployed, who's being deploying it, what are the timeframes around that? Investors are still very interested in the transportation sector. Um, there's a reason that you know China moved so quickly on this, right? They're a major importer of refined fossil fuels, right? They don't want that exposure. And then from an environmental side, their license to operate isn't around a, a democratic construct, right? It's around the government delivering a quality of life. So they, they are, are moving down this road aggressively um, because of those constraints. The U.S. is a little bit different, right? Because of the, the natural resource footprint, the vehicles that have been consumed here historically. So, you know, I, we, I think we've hit on all these things in, in various different places, but 2022 was an inflection point, right? Why? Was it because of the Inflation Reduction Act? To everything we've just said now, probably not, right? Because it certainly wasn't in, in place and in force in any way. We didn't even know it was going to be called that until August. So it was really about rising gasoline prices in real terms and OEMs delivering vehicles that Americans wanted to buy. It's not the European subcompact. That's just not of interest in this marketplace. So I think that a lot of the the really well-respected modelers that, that talk about penetration rates have been wrong so frequently for the past maybe 10 or 15 years by saying that the growth rate was going to be much higher, that that they're shied off their expectations and, and don't realize that the policy framework is actually what they've wanted for decades, right? The point of sale credit, the billions of dollars for EV charging, this new manufacturing credit, which reduces the cost of the battery that goes into the vehicle. So I, I, don't, I don't think there's a reason to be, you know, negative on it in, in this space. Um, the growth rates are still there. More than a million units sold this month, more than 100 a year, that is, more than 100,000 units being sold every month. These are, these are really big numbers. So I think that's something to lean into on, on the equity performance. I don't, you know, cover those specific names. My colleagues absolutely do, and we're happy to get them on at any given time, but it's, it's certainly a tough marketplace. Okay. So the equities are going to do what they're going to do. Uh, you know, high interest rate environment, profitability, the, the people is just more, you know, more demanding on that side, but you're fundamentally optimistic just on the demand side that, you know, it's being consumer driven um and uh the inflation reduction act has you know caused a lot of investment but it hasn't actually caused a lot of uh the impact hasn't yet been felt you know of all of that production yeah and it's certainly not the only driver by far it does it mm -hmm. the, the timing of those purchases in 2022 are more reflective of gasoline prices and models than policy right 2023 the policy will be in place uh, in, into march of this year we there was not guidance for a dealer or a tesla to understand how to qualify their vehicle so there, there were huge challenges there so we'll, we'll, we'll see going forward uh, but I, I don't think there's a reason to think that the, the noise you're hearing from Dems or Republicans about 2024 is, is driving that down. Um, that, that seems um, to be the, the wrong takeaway at this point. Okay. So the opportunity to surprise on the upside because all of this stuff will be implemented, you know, next year is, uh, is very possible. Okay, great. John, thank you very much again for uh, all of that. And um, for those listeners who I, I very often um, listen to, these podcasts on like one and a half or sometimes, you know, two times speed. But uh, in the case of John, you may want to just slow it down, you know, to 0. 0.75. <laughs> I tried to slow it down too. Oh man. Okay. No, you, did, right. you, 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 did, you did pretty well, John. Pretty uh, compared, well. <laughs> compared to last time. Anyway, Thanks. great. Uh, have a good rest Love of your it. week and thanks. we'll talk to you Thanks, soon. Howard. Cheers. Howard, great to see you John, again. Yeah. Thanks guys. Good. Bye.